0: no purchase necessary. Void Voidware prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: And the Oscar goes to... Oh, thank you so much. This might be the one time I'm speaking. This is not a joke. Moonlight is one best picture. Could you double-check the envelope? And I can't deny the fact that you like me. Thank you, life. Thank you, love. You guys are just standing up because you feel bad that I fell, and that's really embarrassing, but thank you. This is... It's a tie. I'm the king of the world. And the Oscar goes to... And, and the Oscar too. goes to... my only object in being here is to try and get out of the truth. Watch like a oh, watch like this. He's looking at you, kid. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. They can only kill me with a golden bull. What have I done? Call me, Mr. Tibbs. I'm going to make him an offer, can't
0: Census taker once tried to test me. I'm not entertained. I ate his liver. Listen, I'm finally preferred. I feel nice. Kid. Don't laugh! I can't stop what's coming. This ain't reality TV! I will not fall into the You hate bloggers! You mock Twitter! It's time, Robbie! It's fast! Welcome to the next Best Picture Podcast.
2: And the Oscar goes to. Everything. Everywhere. Hello everyone and welcome to the
0: Next Best Picture Podcast episode 365. I am your host Matt Neglia. The time of recording is 11.09am here on the East Coast and here to join me today from the West Coast I have Tom O'Brien. Hi everybody. And just a couple of towns over from me, Giovanni Lago.
1: Hello everyone.
0: So for this week's episode, we got quite a few things to talk about in the world of award season. We had the Critics' Choice Documentary Award nominations announced this week. So setting the stage for the documentary feature race, which we desperately need, it seems like, every year to help try and narrow this down a little bit. There's so many contenders in that category each and every single year. We have the Gotham Independent Film Award nominations announcing this week on October 24th. We're going to talk about some of the announcements that have already been made for that, plus... What we think might show up this week in the nominations. We got trailers to discuss, ranging from The Boys in the Boat, American Fiction, Eileen, The Zone of Interest. Lots to discuss there, quite a range. We have a preview of the AFI Film Festival, which myself, Tom O'Brien, Emma Sasek will be attending over the next couple of days. We're going to go over the polls. We're going to answer fan questions. Got a great show for you all here today. But first, what did everyone see this past week? Starting off with Giovanni Lago. Well, luckily for me, I, I needed a
1: calmer week, so it was, I didn't really watch much. You know, post-NIF, my body's already just worn down. Uh, so I saw two films. Um, I saw the Persian version, which I saw the trailer before I saw Dixon Musical, and I was like, oh, this looks incredibly charming and sweet and fun. And when watching the movie, there is... That charm that exudes through it. And uh, Leila Mohammadi is really good. And uh, Noisha Noor, the two main leads, the mother and daughter, are very good. Unfortunately, the whole film to me, I did not like as a whole. I think the editing is incredibly jarring. I think the way they tend to go on tangents through the mom's backstory through certain periods of the film or like for such a long period of time really detracts from all the other storylines, which feel incredibly half-baked in the film. I didn't really dig it. I just found out it won the Sundance Audience Award. And I was surprised. But, I mean, they do love films that do make you feel good. And by the end, it attempts to do that. So, I, I, from that aspect, I totally see. And the last film I saw, which was technically my last film at NIF after uh, last week's recording, I saw The Killer. And... I loved (laughs) I loved it. It's incredibly my type of movie. Like the bucket hats are a yes. Every outfit Michael Fassbender wears rocks. It's so funny. It's incredibly funny. I personally think it's like one of the funniest films I've seen all year. The action is great. The sound work is unreal i know matt mentioned um last time there's a fight sequence and the sound work in it yeah it's just brutal and, and the whole time i was just waiting i was like mm, i wonder when this is coming and when it does i'm like wow this is immaculate also i just have to say very accurate portrayal of florida um <laughs> it was it was very very spot on i was like david fincher got like every detail down uh it's so much fun i wouldn't say it's you know like Top tier uh, David Fincher, but it's an incredibly vibey movie. It's very rewatchable. Uh, it breezes by. The ending, it, it kind of ends. I Me and Dan Barry talked a lot about um, films this year that everything leading up is so good. And then a lot of these films just feel like they just end and doesn't really feel satisfactory or conclusive to the whole experience. But I loved everything leading up to it for the killer that I do not mind. It's incredibly enjoyable film. Go see it when it comes out.
0: Okay. A lot of uh shared sentiment here that I have with you, geo. I still maintain. It's like Fincher doing this in his sleep a little bit, but it is so refined and so precise. It's so darkly funny. It's an entertaining watch. I wouldn't consider it like one of his most important films or one of his best films or anything like that at all, but just all around solid the whole way through. And yeah, I kind of agree about the ending a little bit. Um, I'm curious to see how it will play on a rewatch, but I'm sure it'll be just as fun as it was the first time because that was not the word I was thinking I would use heading into this movie. But, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And there's one scene in particular with Fassbender and Tilda Swinton that is, oh. I think, the highlight of the entire movie. So
1: good. Also, there's another actor in the film who I'm not going to say is in it that I didn't know. And I did the Maverick, uh, the warlock like fist (laughs) up in the air. And when you see it, you'll get it. And I was just like, yes. okay, David Fincher. He did it.
0: All right. Tom O'Brien. How about you? What did you watch this past week?
2: Well, Matt, I wasn't on yesterday's epic podcast review for Killers of the Flower Moon, but I did see the film this week, and I just kind of, kind of want to put in my uh, little bit on it. Yeah, I found it really to be almost everything I hoped for. I mean, it's really good, Scorsese. Even if, for me at least, it's not quite up to masterpiece level. Um, I think the magic of those three performers giving it all in the film's first half which was just astonishing diminished somewhat when Lily Gladstone's Molly edges out of the center of the story still there, but, but is not quite uh, the central focus in the back half of it. And for me, at least in that back half, the script got very dense, you know, with the um, henchman's backstory and then the introduction of the FBI and all of that. Uh, It's, Really, I think for me at least, it's it's not t- top tier Scorsese, but it's certainly upper third Scorsese, and it and man, that is great company to be in. Uh, I really, really like Killers of the Flower Moon, so count me down as a big yes.
0: Yeah, it's easily one of my top ten favorite movies of the year. If you guys want to hear us talk about it at great length. Uh, I think we gave it the podcast that it deserved. Uh, We talked about the film for almost the length of the film itself, three and a half hours. And it was a very thoughtful discussion. Uh, We touched upon pretty much everything. Giovanni was there. He 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 uh, Giovanni got initiated into the MVP club. Finally, like for real with his first three hour plus long podcast.
1: (laughs) It was great. It was great. I had a great time.
0: So if anyone wants to hear our thoughts on that, uh, definitely give that a listen. I think it's one of the best reviews that we've done this year. Yeah. And that's not to say that like every time we do a long podcast, it means it's the best. OK, that's not what I mean. No. I just mean that we really gave the film its due, talked about it from all different angles. There's a lot of interpretations, too, to be had, I think, too, with how you wrestle with the film's themes, the production of it, uh, who's telling the story, how the story's being told. So, much to discuss.
2: It's good stuff. I also spent the week, it's also caught up on a few documentaries this week that I just wanted to talk about quickly since we'll be talking about docs. Yeah, Two of them are making their streaming debuts this week, so you can see them at home right now. And one opens in theaters this coming weekend. The first one up is uh, Silver Dollar Road, which is the latest doc by Raoul Peck, who was nominated for an Oscar in 2016 for his Look at Racism in the life of James Baldwin in I am not your Negro. You may remember that one. Mm-hmm. It's really good. Um, here he deals with racism again, but this time he chronicles um, one black family struggled to hold on to a piece of land on North Carolina's shoreline that had been in their family's home for generations. And through a bit of manipulation and loopholes in law, uh, a, development company claimed ownership the film gets a little bit in the weeds when it talks about inheritance laws about a third of the way through and it was losing me fast but then when it gets into the you know good guy bad guy uh, uh struggle of the family doing everything in their power to keep their home and the uh a development company it, it it really kind of bounces right back and uh it's it, it winds up being a very very satisfying doc uh, and uh, a worthy companion piece to I'm Not Your Negro. It's in theaters now, and it is also streaming, if you'd like to see it today, on Prime Video. Also streaming, you know, any new documentary by um, Errol Morris is an event, and he's got a really good one with The Pigeon Tunnel, which uh, chronicles the life of a former British spy named David Cornwell, whose name may not be familiar to you, but you may know him by his literary non bloom John le Carré, the author of Spy Who Came After the Cold and uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. It's interesting what what almost does in this. He sets up the interview and it's basically it's an interview with with uh, with the uh, Cornwell as a confrontation. And and Cornwell loves that because he kind of thrives on that kind of um, back and forth that you have. And the two of them kind of play a cat and mouse game. Cornwell's kind of coy about things he wants to talk about and doesn't want to talk about. And Morris tries to play games with him to try and get him to talk about these things. It's not unlike the kind of cat and mouse games that uh, Cornwell as Jean-Luc um uh, used in his spy novel. So it's kind of an interesting uh, parallel uh, there. It's a uh, for such a reclusive figure, he's really sort of surprisingly candid. And was done in t- the, the interview was done in 2019, shortly before he died. But he's very eloquent, and it's just a joy to watch him and to see Errol Morris really exercise his style once more. This, I think, Matt had its premiere at Telluride. I think this year. Yep, that's where I saw it. Cool. And it's right now it's screening on um, streaming on Apple TV Plus. So another one you can see.
0: There's also a interview with between me and Errol Morris up on the podcast that uh, ranks as one of the I don't want to say toughest, but he, he was definitely a very interesting person to interview. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> um, finally, uh, this is a fascinating doc that's opening this coming weekend in theaters. It's called Four Daughters. Uh, yes. And it's the Tunisian entry for the Academy Awards. And it premiered at Cannes. Um, yep. Did you see did you see it at Con man?
0: Yeah, Emma and I uh, watched that together. It's one of the more unique documentaries I've seen this year just in terms of how it chooses to tell its story.
2: Yeah, it's – it's the background on it is it's a documentary about um, a family. The, the mothers raised four daughters and in the course of that as they grew up – she's a tough mother apparently – two of the – the two oldest girls run away and join ISIS. Mm-hmm. And, um, so the director, uh, Kalther Benhania Ben wants to recreate those, ever, the events that lead up to it. So she, what she does is she, she has the cooperation of the family, the two girls who are still at home and the mom, and she brings in actors to play the missing daughters. And, the mother in scenes where it's maybe too emotionally wrought for the real mother to, um, to perform in it's very self-consciously a documentary, which I found really interesting. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of it is, you know, the, the women, you know, at the makeup table, just talking and sharing things. And while there are recreations of the events, um, you learn as much, if not more at the makeup tables, when they you they really dig down and talk about their uh, the younger daughters talk about the, how their the how much they idolize their older daughters who left and um, what the trauma of their departure and their choice to join uh, ISIS really uh, has a, had an effect on the family so it's a real interesting mix and it really kind of it's a fascinating way to do a documentary and uh, and it, the. the it stayed with me. It's stayed with me since I've seen it. So it's really good. If, um, it'll open up slowly across the country and uh, keep an eye out for Four Daughters because it's one that uh, I think it would be very worth catching. Absolutely.
0: All right. Um, this was a week of rewatches for me. Didn't get a chance to watch anything new. Um, and that's by design. I was pretty exhausted after NYFF and I just wanted to relax a little bit this past week. So um, I went home uh, to visit uh, my grandmother, who um, she's not in the best health uh, right now, and so um, wanted to spend some time with her. So we watched uh, three movies back to back, and the, the first one was a movie that I was like, "Hey, listen, I want to rewatch this. I don't know. I don't know if you're gonna get it." But my grandmother's is the type of person that you can put anything on in front of her, any movie at all, and she'll watch it, no matter what it is. So I rewatched Across the Spider-Verse. <laughs> <laughs> and this is my first time watching it since theaters. And let me tell you all something, okay? This movie held up so much for me on a rewatch, so much so that I cannot see a world where this does not place in my top ten of the year. And for the first time, I really, really started taking seriously – What if when we do head into the precursors, enough critics groups do push this for score, adapted screenplay? And then I start thinking about like other possibilities. I think this is one of the best edited animated films I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, The sound work is incredible throughout. I was so wrapped up in the story and I just started thinking about all the things that people have been saying since the spring and taking it a bit more seriously now that we're deeper into the year. Because back in the spring when this first came out, yes, it was talked about. Yes, it was debated. But like there was so much road ahead. For a lot of releases that it was tough to take seriously this being in the conversation for other categories than animated feature, especially coming off the heels of Pinocchio last year, where we thought that that was going to get nominations outside of animated feature and just ended up getting animated feature, which it rightfully won in the end. So naturally, I was thinking that same trajectory was on course for this film. Uh, but between this, The Boy Niharan and the uh, Heron and Elemental. I think there's a number of animated films this year that can get uh, nominations outside of animated feature. It's just a question of which way will the precursors go in terms of conditioning people to take these uh, films seriously in other categories elsewhere? And will the industry pay attention and respond as such when the guilds announce? I mean, that's the real key here. I I think Spider-Verse is going to do extremely well with the guilds. I have no doubt that it's going to get nominated for animated feature, it'll probably win again. But I I think based on everything else I've seen this year, I would put it up there with some of the best I've seen all year. Truly. Great. After that, I showed my uh, mother and my grandmother, Past Lives.
1: Yay. Which, as you
0: all know, is a film that I really, really love. And it was like my, Jesus, like my fourth, fifth time watching this movie. (laughs) Still great. Still love it. Another film that's easily a top ten for me this year. Uh, happy to say they both liked it as well. Uh, the subtitles was not was not a barrier. Um, it's more intimate and slow uh, pace was also not a barrier, which I was a little concerned about because you know this is the kind of stuff that for their demographic, uh, especially I want to like gauge that reaction to try and figure out like how will this play with. Academy voters for a Best Picture nomination, so that didn't seem to be a hurdle. And then we watched The Burial, which is streaming on Amazon Prime, and uh, that's just a very entertaining movie, honestly. Jamie Foxx, I I think it's Jamie Foxx's best performance since Ray, to be honest with you. He's really, really good in this movie. And uh, I, I loved Maggie Betts' uh, previous film, Novitiate, and uh, I just hope people can give this movie a chance. It's, uh, you know, nothing earth-shattering or anything like that. It's a very... Uh, Well done courtroom drama that it feels like, you know, we would have gotten in the 90s, maybe early 2000s. But it just plays very, very well. Yeah. Uh, And then after that, I rewatched Killers of the Flower Moon and the rest is history because uh, that podcast that we recorded was the direct result of that rewatch. And it was my third time watching it. I saw it this time in Dolby Atmos. And man, like three times in. That's what at this point, 10 and a half hours. (laughs) What a picture. Okay, uh, let's head on over now into some award season talk here. Why don't we start off first with the Critics' Choice Documentary Award nominations. Um, They have a lot of categories. Um, I I served actually um, on the nominating committee this year. I'm not going to talk anything about like behind the scenes, what went on with that. uh, But the end result here of what we came up with for our nominees this year, pretty good across the board, I would say. Uh, But this is just the beginning. Of this race, I decided to write an article about this a couple of days after the nominations, talking about how the dark, the dark race is only just beginning. And if you look at other CCDA nominations of the past, their overlap with the eventual Oscar Five is a high of four out of five. So, two years they've overlapped four out of five. There's been only one year where it was two out of five, and that was actually last year. The other years are all three out of five. So you can imagine, on average, three of your Oscar nominees are in this lineup. And the lineup is 20 Days in Mariupol, American Symphony, Beyond Utopia, The Deepest Breath, The Eternal Memory, Judy Bloom Forever, Kokomo City, The Mission, Stand From the Beginning, and still a Michael J. Fox movie. Now, if you read my article, then you know at three I'm currently thinking, are of a three that probably would overlap and move over. Uh, but if you didn't read my article, which three do you think those are? It would be on
1: Utopia. Mm-hmm.
0: 20 Days. Yep. Do you think Stamp from the Beginning will? Yep. That's the third. And if there is a four out of five, I would say The Eternal Memory, because I've been hearing that that's been playing extremely well at various uh, guild screenings that have been being held here in New York. Yeah. I, I can see that. I mean, and then I would say Kokomo City probably is like the fifth one. Now, you might be wondering, why not American Symphony? Why not still a Michael J. Fox movie? These got so many nominations. American Symphony led in nominations. Celeb dogs. All one needs to do is look at the types of movies that the documentary branch of the Academy has nominated over the last couple of years. And you will see that they traditionally do not go for celebrity documentaries. And if they do, it's very, very rare. But they traditionally don't. And so because of that, like you, you what you need to kind of do is you kind of need to think outside the box and look at the movies that um, have international appeal and also have either a very unique way that the story is being told or has a sense of weight and importance to it on a political or social level. And so this is where you start coming up with movies like A Still Small Voice, which wasn't nominated here, or Four Daughters, like you mentioned, Tom, that's Mm -hmm. not nominated here. Um, And these are the kinds of things that, like, I would just ask people to think outside the box when they're considering this category because there is a lot of documentaries that um, can still factor in, even if they were not nominated here. But those types of films tend to be the ones that usually don't get as widely nominated across all these different um, organizations. And they tend to get these key nominations, like at the uh, – mention mentioned at the Cinema Eye Honors or the International Documentary Association or a Spirit Award nomination. And this is where you find movies like the uh, Riding with Fire, which for so, so many people like, kind of came out of nowhere – um when, when the predictions were announced oh when the nominations were announced, or the mole agent, uh, A House Made of Splinters, for example. This is where I would like start to consider uh, movies like I'm I'm just I'm just throwing out other ones here, like Thirty Two Sounds, mm-hmm. A Compassionate Spy, Smoke Song of Sisterhood. Yep. So I mean at, at this point here, looking at your own predictions for a documentary feature, where where are you guys at today?
1: I'm still thinking it's like beyond for like what i have as my number one or just as a whole in my as a
0: whole
2: well um, i i certainly have as my top two beyond utopia and 20 days of maripol i mean Mm -hmm. both of those knocked me out at at sundance and um they they have not budged from from my top two um uh, there's a few i haven't seen i've not seen uh kokomo city or stamp from the beginning yet or eternal memory The Mission has gotten a lot of play the last week or so uh, since it's opened in theaters. And um, Nat Geo does have a bit of a track record. So I I would not I would not dismiss that one. No, I wouldn't either. And then there there are smaller uh, docs. I think that uh, Bad Press was a very good documentary on uh, Native American uh, journalism issues smoke sauna sisterhood it is a particularly interesting one since it's it's basically a group of women in a sauna just to talking letting their hair down and talking about what women have on their mind that they can't really talk about in public
0: it makes a really good companion piece with women talking
2: yeah yeah very much so uh, Silver Dollar Road also comes into that kind of important. Uh, issue-oriented doc that uh, you have. So there may be things farther down that uh, uh, could be one of those big surprise fifth nominees.
0: Have you guys heard about this uh, one documentary here called Our Body
2: by Claire Simon? I know. I've been reading about it, and some people have been predicting it, but I know very little about it. It is a nearly three-hour-long documentary
0: that follows uh, a public hospital And uh, the women in this hospital and it it, it takes place in the uh, gynecology ward uh, in Paris. And Emma Sasek saw it. She was blown away by it. She wrote a review for it on our site. It's standing at 100% Rotten Tomatoes. And this is just one of those docs, like I said this year, where it's like, you got to think outside the box. You got to look for these ones that have a level of social significance that are going to resonate with people on an emotional level and have the kind of acclaim that would push it towards that nomination. Now, I'm curious to know because, Tom, there's one documentary in particular that has been making the rounds at the fall film festivals, and that's Orlando by Political Biography. Have you seen that one yet?
2: I have. I saw it in New York, and it's it's a very provocative doc. It is basically taking uh, contemporary trans actors and them acting out passages from Virginia Woolf's novel Orlando which you may remember was a film with uh, Tilda Swinton several years ago. Yep. And it, it brings in it. They perform the text, but then they bring in their own lives and their own stories of their transition that uh, really illuminate the text and become very moving. Again, this is a this plays with form very much. And, but uh, nonetheless, the subject matter is important and timely. And, you know, I could see them going for it, but it's, it's, it's going to be a little out there choice. But, hey, if we're thinking about talking outside the box, this one really is.
0: Now, you said you haven't seen Stamp from the Beginning yet, right? No, not yet. See, like Stamp from the Beginning is very interesting because it very much reminds me a lot of Ava DuVernay's 13th in that it's essentially a history lesson in many ways, uh, but it packs so much information in a short runtime that it feels incredibly overwhelming to a good degree Mm. um, because it's very, very powerful in the way it communicates its message. Um, It uses animation. It has these really um, informative uh, talking interviews that are, uh, I I think, from people who provide not only relevant information, but also uh, their perspective and experience of being black and what that means uh, to the message that's being conveyed through the documentary, which is essentially that Roger Ross Williams is basically taking this book uh, of the same name that essentially tries to deconstruct what it means to be black in America and how that has been forced upon black people by the media and by uh, white people in this country for decades and how it has transformed into today. You know, Netflix very rarely misses in this category nowadays because they always have a good slate of docs. Like you said earlier, Tom, Nat Geo being another one. These are distributors that we have to take very seriously in this category. And between this and The Deepest Breath, which I would argue is Netflix's other really big contender, I just found this one to have more of that social importance.
2: Yeah. In this category, the the Academy is not unlike uh, their decisions to go with best picture. Everything needs to have a bit of a weight to it.
0: Right. What, what was like the last documentary nominee that we had that was like light and fun? My Octopus Teacher. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> and that was Netflix. <laughs> what a good time. <laughs> oh, man, that's great. All right. Any other thoughts? Any other comments about uh, the way the documentary races shape it up so far?
2: Boy, this looks like a good year.
0: You know, it's funny you say that. I actually feel like it's shaping up to be a good year, but it wasn't a good year off the bat out of Sundance, in my opinion, like it has been over years. There were, you know, there were some docs that definitely exceeded expectations were really good, but there were other docs that I just didn't get the sense that um, they had as much impact as some other Sundance Film Festival docs have had in the past, you know, that early on. Yeah. Yeah. So it's starting to come together now at this point. I'll be really curious to see though, uh, you know, which film ends up winning the uh, critics (laughs) choice because, Oh man, after good night, last year. You better watch out if you win at this, uh, at this organization, (laughs) (laughs) not to mention all the others before that, uh, between OJ and summer of soul, just bad luck with this, uh, with this organization. Yeah. Okay, uh, let's move on over next now uh, to talk about the Gotham Awards. Gentlemen, we all know first impressions matter. And if you're not taking care of your skin, that's going to be the first thing someone notices and instantly either thinks you're way older than you are or you just don't care about your appearance. Show them you do and make a good first impression with Caldera Lab. You're going to brush your teeth today. Incorporating skincare steps before it guarantees to not mess up your routine, leaving your breath fresh and your face refreshed. Caldera Lab creates high-performance men's skincare products, and the regimen leads off their product lineup, a twice-a-day routine to transform your skin. Caldera Lab knows the skincare world is heavily female-driven and has long been the wild, wild west for men. That's why they're making the solution simple. The regimen includes three products, the Clean Slate, the Base Layer, and the Good. The Clean Slate starts and ends your day. This face wash leaves all skin types refreshed. The Base Layer is your daily moisturizer to hydrate your skin and jumpstart your day full of confidence. The good is your go-to multifunctional serum at night that helps your skin look tighter and smoother as well as helps reduce the visibility of wrinkles and fine lines. Every drop of this serum is packed with 3.4 million antioxidant units protecting your skin. And the Caldera Lab Icon Eye Serum? It addresses the three most common skin concerns around the eye. Fine lines, dark circles, and puffiness. Caldera Lab is the leader in men's skincare, Made only with top tier ingredients and clinical trials have found 94% of men's skin showed an overall younger looking appearance after using Caldera Lab for a few weeks. One minute morning and night is all it takes to reduce your wrinkles, fine lines, and signs of aging. And just for our audience, we have an exclusive offer. This is their best offer available anywhere. Use code NBP at calderalab.com and get 20% off right now. Get 20% off with code NBP at calderalab.com and make unforgettable first impressions that lead to the charming words. You look younger. 20% off at calderalab.com with code NBP. Gotham nominations are being announced this week. And this is a pretty significant year for them because in the past, uh, the Gotham Awards have been the unofficial kickoff for the precursors. They are usually the first award show of the season, and that usually concludes historically with the Film Independent Spirit Awards right before the Oscars, although the Independent Spirit Awards are now no longer a day before the Oscars, so everything's kind of messed up at this point. Mm. Um, But the Gotham Awards have... In the past, nominated films that could not exceed a budget of $35 million. Well, guess what? This year, no such limitation, (sighs) which I'm very much against. I very much enjoyed the fact that Gotham's and Spirit Awards were the only place where independent films could rightfully be recognized without those larger productions kind of hogging the spotlight. And now I'm worried about what's going to show up here. Not to say that they don't deserve to be here, but when you have tinier films that are struggling to get seen, and this is like their one time to have a spotlight shined upon them to where people might check them out, and you're going to nominate Killers of the Flower Moon, Oppenheimer, Barbie, God knows what else. I mean, what are we doing here? I get it that the organization needs this to probably survive financially, but I don't know, I'm really I'm really hoping and praying that the nominating committees for each of these categories will uh, I'm sure that there might be a film or two here or there, you know, but I don't think it's going to be an exact replica of what you would see at every other award show. I still think it is going to retain some form of an independent uh, spirit, if you will, no pun intended. So that's my that's my hope here. I really, really hope that the nominee committee will maybe there, maybe there's like a mandate that we don't know about. Maybe there's like you must nominate at least one nominee per category that exceeds a budget of $35 billion, but they're not like publicly making that known. I don't know, because what if the nominating committee, even with this limit uh with this limitation lifted, came together and said, Well, you know what? We're just not going to nominate anything above that budget amount. Like wouldn't somebody have to then step in and say, no, 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 you kind of need to? I, I don't know. Like, I I don't know. I, don't know.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they seem to have eliminated their entire reason for being <laughs> with this with this change. I mean, I remember the year, one year that um, they gave their Best Picture Award to the writer. And that was the first time I'd ever heard the name Chloe Zhao. Yeah. And that's that's what the Gotham's did. It really put a spotlight on people who were doing great work at the time but were little known and would become household names later on.
0: Here's another thing that Gotham did. Just last year alone, they gave supporting best outstanding supporting performance to Kihi Kwan, first prize he won of the season, and best featured everything everywhere all at once. The uh yeah, no no no, it was the year before that. Yeah. Troy Kotzer. Won his first prize of the season for Coda, yes, for outstanding supporting performance, and got that train started. So there are certain narratives that can come out of the Gotham Awards because that is the first place where somebody can give a speech of some sort, and if they endear themselves enough to people, you know, it, it can inevitably start a train that never stops. Yeah. God, I need I need that for John Magara this year. Get it? You see, like get like for
1: performances and past lives. You know that. So all these big performances, especially like in Best Actress, you know, this is a place where someone like Greta Lee could get nominated and that could really help really put a showcase on our performance. But if you're allowing this budget, hopefully this voting committee isn't like, all right, guys, it's officially Barbenheimer time and just go crazy with it.
0: See, I just don't think they're going to do that. But uh, Jeffrey Sharp, the executive director, you know, has said With shifting budgets, we've decided to eliminate arbitrary budget caps for submission eligibility, which was first instituted over a decade ago, to broaden our reach in terms of recognition and accessibility to the wider community. Basically, they're saying nobody really seems to give a shit about these awards. We're not doing well with our social media numbers or whatever it is, right? Um, We're we're struggling to secure financing for the show. I don't know, right? Whatever coded language you want to use here, bottom line is... They have to do this for financial business purposes. Yep. And if that's what it takes to get them to survive, then fine, so be it. But you then can't turn around and tell me that um, the nominating committees, it, who I'm sure want to retain that independent like identity for the Gothams, you, you can't tell me that they don't have like somebody leaning over their shoulder saying, hey, can you just make sure that so-and-so maybe gets considered here? You know what I mean? Because like, yeah. otherwise, what's the point? I mean, it will be hilarious. I will die laughing if the nominations are announced and none of the m- films nominated are over $35 million in budget. That would be
2: hilarious. <laughs> that would be pretty funny. <laughs> now, I can I can see that there are very much risk-taking movies that fit right into the Gothams that might have in previous years exceeded that budgetary cap mm-hmm. that – you know, I, I there there is a potential very tiny silver lining in all of this, um, but uh, nonetheless, I I, I I understand their financial situation, but uh, you know, it just it comes at the cost of their identity. Yeah. I'm afraid.
0: Well, we'll see. You know, the uh, tributes that they've announced so far: uh, the visionary icon and creator tribute is going to be going to Ben Affleck for Air, the icon and creator tribute for social justice is going over to Rustin. Any cultural icon and creator tribute is going over to Maestro, which I don't know. Will Bradley Cooper show up to accept this as a director remains to be seen. Well, he's been standing in solidarity with SAG and he hasn't done really any promotional work for this film at all. I'll be very curious. I mean, let, let me, you know, the real hope is that somehow some way a miracle can happen before. Uh, in this case, November twenty seventh, and the AMT, AMPTP can come to their senses and strike a deal with SAG-AFTRA because, dear God, like what the hell are we doing, people? We're literally risking, yeah, the, not only the film award season, but we are risking, uh, twenty twenty four at this point.
2: Yeah, fingers crossed. They're meeting again on Tuesday. <sighs>
0: yep. I mean, they, they made it very, very clear that the deal that uh, SAG-AFTRA proposed was literally not going to happen. And so I have to imagine at this point, SAG-AFTRA is not going to get everything that they want. Compromise is going to have to be made. And we'll see. We'll see what is the result of that. Um, I'm hoping that it's something good. I can understand where major stars like George Clooney and Emma Stone and a few others who came forward and tried to ride in on a white horse and try to solve all of this for everybody. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, like just just let the negotiators do their thing and let SAG-AFTRA honestly argue for the little guys because that's who really needs this at the end of the day. I mean, uh, you know, I'm sure major actors love getting work as well, and we love seeing them out in the open at these festivals and award shows. Don't get me wrong, but it's the little guys who need this. And it extends beyond that because right now without productions happening – Think of all the other jobs that are impacted as a result of this. Exactly. Anyway, we went from talking about the Gotham Awards to the uh, SAG strike. (laughs) Um, Any other thoughts on the Gotham Awards this week? I I would give predictions, but I honestly don't know what to say because of the budget cap now.
1: Yeah, I just I really hope they stay true themselves and highlight a, a bunch of the smaller films that have come out this whole year and shine a light to films that maybe people, you know, haven't seen and can now get the opportunity to get acknowledged for it and people see it and they go, Oh, okay, that looks interesting. I'll check that out. So that's that's what I'm hoping. I again just stick to the core
0: and we'll be all good. What are some of those like smaller films you would like to see highlighted Gio? Uh
1: for me, I know very speaking of uh Gothams, I know uh Oscar Isaac got nominated for card counter. So I would be happy if uh Master Gardener Got some acknowledgement of the Gotham's. I really enjoyed that film a lot. Um, if I have to think of another smaller film, A uh, Past Lives. Past Lives,
0: definitely. Yeah,
1: mm. yeah. Past Lives is one of those films that I would just love to be acknowledged everywhere. Tiana Taylor, A Thousand. Yes, please. please. That would be great. I would like that. Maybe something like Sanctuary, getting like an acting.
2: <laughs> that would be cool. I, I would dig that. In the past, uh, performances like that and sh- uh, films like that are, were their bread and butter. So I, I, I echo Geo's hope. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I can't help but feel like air is going to pop up somewhere. Yeah. Uh, are you very God, it's me, Margaret? That would be lovely. Yes. I would be very happy to see that pop up anywhere. Particularly, though, uh, Rachel McAdams, who I think could really use uh, some steam building right now at the moment. Would love to see how to blow up a pipeline, get some acknowledgement. Mm, That'd be really cool. That's a good one. Yeah. Yes. You think this is where May, December could really start to kick in a little bit?
1: I could see Charles Melton maybe. Oh, yeah. That's, yep, that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I also wouldn't be surprised to see uh, someone from The Holdovers pop up. Yes. Or
1: or even um, Andrew Scott. For all of us strangers. Oh, please.
0: Yes, that needs to happen. I feel I have a good feeling that probably will happen. I I hope so. He deserves it. Okay, well, we'll see. Like I said, it's a very, very tough year to kind of figure it out because we're in an unprecedented year now with this. So I don't really know, uh, to be honest with you, but we'll see. We'll find out this week on Tuesday. Yep. And we'll talk about it next week. (laughs) Okay, and speaking of things that are happening uh, this upcoming week, Tom, we have AFI Film Fest. Oh, boy. We're back.
2: (laughs) Yes, sir.
0: Five days in L.A. Um, I want to just say for the record, I really hate the way that they do the scheduling for this. I genuinely do. I don't like that so many great films are pitted against each other. And because so many of them are only screening once... That's the one time you can see it. So you're, like, forced to make these really, really tough decisions, and if this has been, like, the only festival that you've had a chance to go to, you're missing out on so much. It may seem all well and good when the lineup first gets announced, and you're like, oh, my God, look at all these movies. But, you know, it's like you have Maestro going up against the end we start from, About Dry Grasses, Last Summers, The Settlers – uh, and I'm, and i'm just looking at one day here you know and it's like yes what do you do in that situation
2: it's very very frustrating i mean they they do center it in one theater complex and i can understand the 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 logic behind that mm-hmm. but it so limit uh, the number of choices you can make because they are they are so good and they're so perversely scheduled against each other
0: yeah like, I think you were mentioning to me earlier, you're going to go see All Dirt Roads, Taste of Salt. Like, that's going up against Cobweb. Yes. Which hasn't played anywhere. Or, well, I know it's played, like, some places, but, like, barely anywhere since Can. Yeah. And I just think that's, like, a really tough choice for certain cinephiles to make. Or Memory is going up against The taste of things. Four Daughters, La Camira. Like, it's just, yeah. maybe there is, like, a clear path and people, like, know what works for them and they just decide, OK, I'm going to do this, this, this and this and that's that, you know? Yeah. But I just wish that there was a way, just any way to introduce additional screenings so that it would give people an
2: opportunity and maybe also increase the length of the fest. You know, I mean, five days is very, very short, very short. And, you know, and there there are screening places around L.A., God knows that they could open it up to other theaters. Mm-hmm. So we do
0: have some world premieres. Happening uh, at AFI Fest. Uh, First, we have Leave the World Behind, which is the opening night film from Sam Esmail, who people might know from uh, Mr. Robot and Homecoming. He is making a thriller that we talked about the trailer for a couple of days ago. Um, Looks very M. Night Shyamalan-y, Black Mirror sort. Yeah. And it has Ethan Hawke, Mahershala Ali, Julia Roberts, a few others here, too. It's a Netflix release. I'm not expecting greatness, but I'm hoping it's an entertaining thriller.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it it having. I can see why they want to have an opening night. Unfortunately, we won't have stars on the red carpet, but nonetheless, it has it has a lot of movie star elements that I think AFI Fest. It's one of the one of the things that the festival is known for.
0: I know for myself, I will be uh, venturing over to see *Society of the Snow*, which um, only played at Venice, so I haven't had a chance to see it yet so that's one of the titles that i'm going over there for um very much looking forward to seeing that because then i'll be able to definitively say if i feel that that's an international contender or not i mean on paper it feels like one but i need to i need to see it for myself to know for sure because i think out of like all of the international contenders or at least the major ones that's like the last one i need to see right now yeah uh albert brooks defending my life Rob Reiner is uh, doing a profile on Albert Brooks, talking about his entire career. I'm sure for the fans of Brooks, that'll be a lot of fun.
2: It's nice to see Rob Reiner in the director's chair again.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Twenty five fucking thousand dollars for sides? <laughs> what, did they cure cancer?
1: Yeah, that's in fact. They do cure cancer. That's
0: what it was. <laughs> we have the world premiere of Freud's Last Session, which is starring Anthony Hopkins and Matthew Good. Sony Pictures Classics has been really quiet about this.
2: Yeah, surprisingly so. I'm I'm presume they're gonna. It's a 2024 release. Maybe. Um, <laughs> of course, they pushed One Life, the uh, you know the other Hopkins film to 2024. So maybe it'll be this year. I don't
0: know. I don't know. All I know is I have a sneaky suspicion that they didn't want me to see it. Um, I ended up buying my ticket in the end for it, and uh, I'll be seeing it anyway. So <laughs> we'll see. So there. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, Maxine's Baby, the Tyler Perry story. Tyler Perry, a megastar. Huge, huge name in not just Hollywood, but entertainment in general. So you know that this is going to have a huge spotlight on it. It's an Amazon release. I'm really interested in seeing this mostly because I just find him to be such a fascinating individual in any documentary that chronicles his life, his upbringing, uh, that turned him into the success that he is today. Uh, I'm just very, very interested in hearing that story.
2: Yeah. He's, you know, so many people just think of him as Medea. Um, but he has done, I think, more than any other individual to b- bring black people into films behind the camera mm-hmm. and give them their first starts and, and just giving them the kind of experience that has already blossomed into careers. I mean, he's, he's a key force in Hollywood, and I think... Uh, You know, I think it's great that he's finally going to be getting attention, some of the credit for it.
0: Uh, Other than that, I mean, there's a lot of uh, titles that uh, I've already had a chance to see. Uh, The closing night film uh, is going to be Maestro, uh, which uh, are
2: you seeing that there, Tom? I am. It's eluded me so far, so I'm very anxious to finally get a chance to see it on that big um, Chinese theater screen. And probably
0: one of the uh, screenings I imagine that's going to have a lot of people flocking over to now is going to be Jeff Nichols' The Bike Riders, because its release date has now been uh, moved by 20th Uh, Century Studios, and we don't know now when it's exactly coming out.
2: I I know. I I want to see
0: it so bad.
2: And of course, they program it against the Teachers' Lounge, one of the big uh, you know, international feature titles this year for the Oscars. So. True,
0: true. <sighs> Although, Tom, if you're if you're personally debating over that, I probably can help you see the Teachers' Lounge. Just FYI. Okay. <laughs> um, I I think you should probably go see Bike Riders only because uh, now we okay. can't see it. <laughs> no one can see it now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, they did say they want to still try to qualify for this year's award season. So, it was originally supposed to come out, I think, December 8th, I believe? And now, I mean, I don't know what they're thinking. Are they going to try and release it at the last week of the month? or They're they're, uh, they're waiting for the strike to end, is really what, what it comes down to. They feel like they need the stars there in order to promote it uh, for award season. I personally don't feel like it's an award season contender, but maybe at least for financial box office purposes, it would be obviously helpful to have the cast there. So yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: Okay. uh, For this week's poll, we are asking everyone, which films are you most looking forward to seeing from the 2023 AFI film festival? I have listed all of the titles here, including documentaries, documentaries, so, Tom O'Brien, you want to either take us through your schedule or just give us a clue into what it is you're looking forward to?
2: Well, I've got it's it's pretty jam packed. Uh, as you had mentioned, Matt, so many things are up against uh, one another and movies overlap, so you can't quite do two or three the way you'd like to. Um, I'm going to be trying to get a ticket on Wednesday to Leave the World Behind. Um, so hopefully, I'll be able to get to see that. On Thursday, I'll be seeing The Peasants which is the animated uh, film that will also be competing in international.
0: Very good. I really, really like that movie from TIFF. And I think a lot of people are still sleeping on that as far as uh, an animated feature nomination this year. Because when, when you see it, it just feels like the type of nominee that the Academy would go for over something like Super Mario Brothers, which I still yeah. see some pundits predicting. And I'm like, I get it. It made a lot of money. And sure, we've had years where movies with sort of a mixed reception have gotten in because they were successful, like, you know, The Despicable Me and uh, Boss Baby and things like that. But this is such a packed year for animation that when they have options to choose from, they're not going for stuff like that.
2: No, they're not. Fingers crossed on that one. That'll be my first film on Thursday, then followed by Totem, Pictures of Ghosts and Albert Brooks Defending My Life. Wow, that's good. Good. Friday, Lost in the Night, Freud's Last Session, and The Teacher's Lounge or The Bike Riders. (laughs) Uh, Saturday, Perfect Days, The Promised Land, Memory, and All Dirt Road Tastes of Salt. Promised Land is awesome. You're going to love that. And finally on Sunday, Mountains, American Fiction, and Maestro.
0: Gio, I know you're not going to AFI Fest. It's okay. Um, But of the list that's here, what have you not seen that you're looking forward to?
1: I'm going to have to say, obviously, number one, The Bike Riders, because it's not going to be able to be seen for me at all until they decide to release it. Um, And that was just a film I was looking forward to. Like, the ensemble looks great. I really dug the trailer. Freud's Last Session, I'm a bit interested in. I think Matthew Good's incredibly underrated. So I would also like to see that. And then I would have to say... Mm, this is tough. There's some solid films. I honestly just want to watch Maestro again. So <laughs> I know I'm
0: seeing that already, but
1: I'll, I'll just say Maestro.
0: Yeah, I, there's certain sequences in Maestro that <sighs> I'm dying to rewatch again. Yes, yes. And if,
1: in a theater setting, too, it was just amazing. Mm-hmm. I completely
0: agree. Uh, for me, I guess some of the world titles I mentioned earlier, uh, world premiere titles uh, that I haven't seen yet, Tyler Perry. Uh, Society of the Snow, uh, Leave the World Behind, uh, Freud's Last Session. These are ones I definitely will be checking out. Um, I am debating right now about seeing uh, Italy's submission uh, for Best International Feature, um, Io Capitano, which had its world premiere at Venice. And then there's uh, City of the Wind, which is Mongolia's submission for Best International Feature. I always get worried with International Feature because when that shortlist gets announced... It's like if I didn't get a chance to see it at a fest, it's like, oh, man, how the hell am I going to get a chance to see this now? So this is the opportunity. Got to take it while it's there. So we'll see how that all ends up panning out. All right. Well, you can head on over to the polls page, nextbestpicture.com and cast a vote. Let us know which films you are looking forward to seeing from the 2023 AFI Film Festival. And before we get to our trailers, I do want to announce the winners of last week's poll, because the New York Film Festival finally wrapped up after... (laughs) What seemed like an entire month of screenings, both press and public. And we asked everyone which films they are most looking forward to seeing that came out of that festival. So, Tom, you kind of already mentioned some like Maestro, for example. You didn't get a chance to see it at this festival, uh, but you are going to see it at AFI. So I imagine that's up there for you. Um, If I remember correctly, Green Border, Hitman. Right. Those are other ones that you didn't get a chance to see.
2: Yep, and I did not get a chance to see Priscilla either, mm. so those those would be the ones that are still high on my list. Okay. Gio, what about
0: you? I know you got a chance to see a lot, but is there anything else that was missing here? Uh Fallen Leaves was the
1: one that I really wish I caught, so that's that, that's the one I need to see.
0: Charming movie, Finland's Oscar submission this year. Yeah, you'll get a chance to see it. I promise you that. Uh, for me, this is a hard question to answer. I think I've seen everything on the list. Uh you know what? I really want to see the uh, concert documentary, uh, Ryuichi Sakamoto Opus. Yes. Yeah. That's playing at AFI Fest. I might catch that there. And I also want to see Going to the Nikki Giovanni project. I started at Sundance. Um, I had it uh, via streaming, and I didn't end up finishing it. I really do want to finish watching that at some point. All right, let's see what the MVP film community uh, voted for for last week's poll. Let's see what they did. Number 10, Ferrari, which got a brand new trailer this week. Yeah. I thought the trailer did a really good job of selling the overall tone of what the movie is. It's not an exhilarating racing film the same way that Ford v. Ferrari is. It's certainly not a massive studio entertainment film like built like that at all. Yeah. It's more of a character study and uh, – Personal drama about this guy whose entire life is crumbling, personally, professionally, financially, everything. I really dug it in parts, and then other parts for me, it kind of a oh, bad analogy. It 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 just went off the road and crashed. <laughs> I really dug it. <laughs> I, I dug it. I'm glad you did. I'm glad you did. I can't wait to re-listen to Daniel Pemberton's uh, score for it, because I really, really like the score as a standalone listen. I still cannot believe like some of those music cues, though, when they would come in in some of those scenes, how sudden and abrupt they felt.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that does happen. But, uh, hey, the, the racing sequences
0: are at least fantastic. Yes. At the least. At least. Number nine, Priscilla, Sophia Coppola. I really, really like this a lot. I thought it lost a little bit of steam in the third act, but otherwise might be her best work since Lost in Translation. Pretty good. I really enjoyed it. Number eight, Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron. Oh, Yes. So good! My favorite film of Nef. I adore this movie. Did you see the English voice cast that they got for this movie? Jeez. Yes.
1: I'm gonna. I'm actually very excited to see uh, in the dub because I always watch uh, sub, especially when it comes to anime. So I know the Ghibli films always get really good cast, and um, so seeing how stacked it was, especially who's playing who, like Pattinson's gonna be the Heron and that's just so interesting to me and and Christian Bale's the father and it has like Florence Pugh and Gemma Chan and Willem Dafoe I'm like yeah okay I I that's pretty good I'm very
0: excited for that I'm calling it now Pattinson's going to put on a voice for this performance Oh yeah
1: you're going to have to for that character oh, for sure It's going to be so good though I'm excited to see it again in sub though the sub is very very good like if you're going to see it see
0: it in sub first I will say number 7 Todd Haynes' is May, December. I think the curiosity factor is very high for this one. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of different reactions to it from people. Um, And what I mean by that is, you know, some people have called it campy. Other people have called it uh, sensual. Other people have called it a psychological drama. It's a lot of different things rolled up into one. And I think that it's a very curious, like you said, Tom, film uh, from Todd Haynes, You know, he doesn't have a lot of his usual collaborators working on this one with him. But, yeah, when you watch it, it also just feels so quintessential Todd Haynes.
2: Yeah. (laughs) For better or for worse. And mostly for better.
0: Yeah. Uh, Number six. Oh, man. I feel bad for anyone that didn't get a chance to catch this one only because it's coming out in 2024 from Netflix. Richard Linklater's Hitman. So much fun. that. Probably one of the best theater experiences I
1: had all year. The crowd ate that movie up.
0: Yeah, definitely for me as well. So entertaining. So much fun. I know that it's going to be on Netflix, people. But if it is playing in a theater by you, whenever it gets released, go see it with a crowd. I beg you. Go see it. Or at least invite a friend or two over to watch it on Netflix. Something. Yep. Okay, number five. David Fincher is the killer, which we already mentioned earlier. Our thoughts on this. Mm hmm. Awesome. Number four. Bradley Cooper's maestro. Mm-hmm. There is one scene in particular in this movie that takes place inside a cathedral that honestly like might be top three best scenes of the year for me. Oh, it's in my top 10 favorite scenes of the year. I was floored by his performance in that moment so much. I that, that that was the moment where one when that scene was over not only because my entire theater applauded but I just immediately thought to myself internally that's it he won the Oscar.
1: It's really good.
0: Like I'm sorry Killian Murphy, I'm sorry Coleman Domingo, I am sorry to everybody. I am sorry, sorry, sorry. But there's no way you watch that scene and you don't then think to yourself, "Oh crap, he's got it." (laughs) Like it's the whole year I've just been
1: like, "Okay, this is everything on paper like you need." And then yeah, you watch that scene and you're like, "Come on!" Like there's no point in trying. It's it's kind of like it reminds me that Family Guy cutaway when like Brian Cranston sneezes and then they just hand him an Emmy. He's like, "Thank you." Like that's practically that's
0: what that scene is, and it's so good. And Carrie Mulligan's got many. Scenes in that movie, I think that will have an impact on voters. I think she's as much in the hunt for it as he is. I think they both could win. I agree.
2: I do. And they both have stories. They do. Number three, Andrew Hayes, All of Us Strangers. Man, that is a a weepy watch. Um, But boy, does it earn it.
0: Yeah, I saw that at Telluride and I cried, cried. Oh, my gosh, did I cry. (laughs) But then, you know, once again, you know, we were saying before about endings this year. I'm still left a little indifferent towards the ending of this movie. And I've talked to people about it to get their reactions. And some people agree with me. Some people don't. But. I've seen it twice now and both times that that has been my issue both times. I think it's a perfect movie literally perfect all the way until the ending
2: yeah I mean we saw it together and I think we both immediately said what was that mm-hmm. it's it just is it just could have ended in such a way to devastate us even just a little bit earlier than it does um, but nonetheless what comes before is extraordinary yeah.
0: OK, number two, we have a trailer to discuss for this one. Jonathan Glazer's The Zone of Interest. Mm, man. Easily one of the achievements of the year. Maybe the directorial achievement of the year, honestly. I mean, did you guys see the poster of A24 released for this this past week? Oh,
2: so good.
0: That might be the best poster of the year. Yeah.
2: And it captures the film so well. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Right. And number one, as you can imagine, because Anatomy of a Fall is now playing in theater. So it wasn't on this list. Number one is Poor Fangs, which totally understandable. Poor Fangs is phenomenal. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just say it. Number one, that's easily one of my top 10 favorite movies of the year. I love, love, love this movie so much. I've seen it twice now. I cannot wait to watch it a third time. I'll be curious to see how it plays at home without an audience, because like half of the fun of that movie is watching it with a crowd. (laughs) it's It's just so outrageous you got Willem Dafoe blowing gas bubbles out of his mouth oh (laughs) so funny what? the dancing
1: the dancing is so great that whole sequence is like everything
0: every sniveling line Mark Ruffalo delivers (laughs) ow ow (laughs) oh god I love 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 that film it's so great Yeah. All right, well, that's it. Those were the uh, top 10 films that people are looking forward to seeing from the New York Film Festival. Next week, we'll announce what they're looking forward to seeing from AFI. And now, let's talk about some of the trailers for some of these movies. In particular, we mentioned American Fiction earlier, which is going to be screening at AFI this upcoming week. Had its world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival, where it won the People's Choice Award. It is written and directed by Cord Jefferson, who has previously written uh, for television series like Watchmen, Succession, Master of None, he's an Emmy Award winner, a WGA winner. This guy, I'm telling you, this is this is the real deal in terms of a feature directorial debut, and I can't wait for more people to see it. Let's take a look at the trailer.
2: How did you come to write this book? What really struck me was that too few books
1: were about my people. Where are our stories? Where's our representation?
0: Would you give us the pleasure of reading an excerpt? Yo, Sharonda, girl, you be pregnant again? If I is, Ray Ray is
1: gonna be a real father this time around.
2: Wow. (laughs) This really takes on some very serious subjects and very tricky subjects, and it seems like it does it with such style and humor. It walks
0: such a fine line, and it does so in a way that he perfectly nailed the satire And the social commentary of what this film is about, so much so that it didn't alienate anybody. And that's part of the reason why it won the People's Choice Award over at Toronto. It was entertaining. It was thought-provoking. It provided Jeffrey Wright a role that, I mean, like, I can't remember the last time he had a role that was this substantial, uh, because he usually seems to be cast in supporting roles, it feels like. Uh, but, yeah, this was one of those movies where it was just pitch perfect in every single way in terms of what it was setting out to do. And it's outrageously funny. I can't even begin to tell you, like, how funny some of the humor is in this movie. I thought this was such a entertaining, great watch. Um, I've seen some people predicting it pretty high in their uh, Oscar predictions. And by pretty high, I mean, like, winning best picture. I'm not really prepared to say that necessarily, but I recognize that this could very well be Amazon's play this year, uh, along with Air. And we'll see which, one, which one's voters respond to more. But if there's one thing I'm pretty sure of, if there's one thing I know definitively, it's that I would bet you all money. Corey Jefferson gets a screenplay nomination for this because the writing is just so sharp. And so up the Academy's alley in terms of what they love to nominate in this category that I just can't imagine it any other way.
2: You know, it it walks a very fine line in terms of in terms of the Academy voting. Yes, it has a lot of humor and it's very funny, but there is an important element to it that they're looking for. It's a significant um, issue that they're dealing with, and I think that may play also very well with the Academy.
1: Mm -hmm. It looks really good. I I didn't really know much about the story, so when I watched the trailer, I thought it was very funny. and I adore Jeffrey Wright. I personally was in the camp where... When French Dispatch came out, I was like, he should get nominated for best supporting actor because I thought he was so brilliant in it. So I'm very happy that he's got an opportunity to have a role to showcase what a great actor he is. And I'm very excited for this film.
0: Yeah, I am pretty confident he will get Critics Choice Golden Globe nominated for this. SAG is the real test. If he gets in at SAG, I think he's getting the Oscar nomination because he just seems at the point in his career where it's just finally time to recognize him with that first nomination. He's worked with so many people. Yep. Everyone respects him. Everybody likes him. Yep. It's just a question of how strong is the film itself to get in the picture. That's the thing that I keep coming back to, because I could very easily see this being a three-nominee film between him, screenplay, and picture, but just him and screenplay and no picture feels weird to me, Um, so I need to see where Amazon's priorities lie between this and air, which we all know they're screening very heavily for the guilds and they're not going to give up on hell. Maybe they get both in and I don't have to then make that choice. And it makes everything a lot easier for me at that point. But, you know, that's where I'm kind of falling on at the moment uh, because best actor seems to be so set with that five with, um, Cooper DiCaprio, Murphy, Domingo, and, um, Giamatti, yeah. That it's just really, really hard for me to imagine who would fall out. And every time I propose somebody, everybody goes up in arms and says, no, Matt, no, no, no. It can't be that. So it's like, okay, well, I'm going to just leave the five.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Somebody big is going to miss, I'm afraid. And I don't know who it's going to be. Because you think Wright's going to pan out? I think so.
0: hmm hmm be interesting who do you think it would be Tom who is it come I on hope
2: it, I hope it's not Giamatti but I'm afraid it might be
0: <sighs> I'm afraid it's Domingo that's what I'm thinking sadly I'm worried he might be like the Daniel Deadweiler of this year where it's like that performance is so undeniable how do you not nominate it and then it's like they don't nominate it and we're wondering how the hell did we end up
2: here <laughs> you know oh, yeah. I'd be heartbroken
0: I, But at the same time it's like counterbalance I'd be so happy for Jeffrey
2: yeah yeah but, but both of them are actors who I think actor other actors respect great, greatly, and that, that's what makes this decision so tough. Yeah.
0: Okay, uh, let's talk about another film that we were mentioning just a few minutes ago, The Zone of Interest, A24 release, coming to theaters on December 15th. This film won the Grand Prix at the Cannes Film Festival, where it made its world premiere, directed by Jonathan Glazer. One of the most critically acclaimed films of 2023. Let's take a look at the trailer. Let's give some thoughts. Both of you have seen it now. Yes. Yes. Okay, so we could talk about, like, does the trailer, in your opinion, having seen the film do a good job of effectively selling itself to people? In the sense that it doesn't tell
2: you too much.
0: Yep. I think it does a really good job in the sense that... Here's the thing. If you guys are thinking that this trailer is withholding information, I can tell you right now, it's not. This is what the movie is. Yeah. It's fly on the wall, observational, watching these people live out their lives. And in the background, as you can see in some of these shots, is the Auschwitz concentration camp. It's a movie that works its way on you on a very cerebral level. And it's something that will linger with you after you've walked out of the theater. Um, it's a very stomach-churning, punishing watch, and I mean that in a good way, because I—I I mean I—I I remember the first time I saw it, I felt very, very sick and ill in my stomach, and I was angry too. Dan Bear had his very similar reaction. I don't know if you guys had a similar reaction, but yeah. it's the kind of movie that has an impact on you, one way or the
2: other. The thing about this trailer is everything that's it does it does set up the film, but if you see a, a a little clip of a woman trying on a coat it may seem very mundane but when you see it in the context of what it is it's devastating
0: mhm yeah
1: agreed it's pretty rough um i and also you know showing the trailer how it's made there's only certain way you can sell this movie to people or like show it off and i think the trailer does a Pretty solid job of telling you and conveying like this is this is practically like you said, Matt. Like this is what's gonna be. And um, yeah. And when if you allow yourself to watch the movie and, and to get absorbed by it, I I think you'll find it rewarding.
0: I'm not ready to put Mika Levy in my five for original score because I just don't think that this is a score that is going to be deemed enjoyable by voters to listen to. Uh, but after watching this trailer, I did finally come around to putting Lucas Zal in my cinematography lineup because the power of these images and seeing them used in the trailer like this and seeing how, when I was able to freeze frame and get like kind of a, you know, visual look at some of these shots, I was thinking to myself, man, you know, it's not, it's not the kind of a uh, colorful, vibrant image that you would get from a cinematography nominee like um, like what Dan Lauston is doing in something like The Color Purple, for example, right? But the composition, the framing of the shots, and the way that the movie was also uh, shot in terms of letting these scenes play out as like these 10-minute long takes, you have to very strategically find a place to put that camera where you're going to be able to capture those mundane moments And I thought he found some really, really brilliant angles. um, And I just can't help but feel like that is something that the cinematography branch will respond to, especially if this ends up being a Best Picture nominee. I can see that. Yeah. And it is Lucas all. So and also, too, I got to give a shout out to the sound work in
1: this movie needs to be nominated. Like, I don't know if they will actually go through with it, but it's some of the most like important sound work like to a film. All I've seen all year. Agreed.
0: And if he doesn't make the director lineup, I mean...
2: Oh, it's war.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I did finally cave in and I did finally put it into my Best Picture 10 uh, because I had him in director for so long and the film was not in picture. And enough of you told me, Matt, in a year of 10, like years where we've had those lone director nominees, like Thomas Vinterberg or... Paolo Pawelkowski for Cold War, like in a year of 10, those films probably would have gotten in the picture. And I do have some doubts about that, but for now I'm caving in and I am putting in the picture and we are going to see. Because I also still think that New York Film Critics Circle, National Society of Film Critics, a few others, they're going to go to bat for this movie hard, I think. I think inherently what makes – I wouldn't say
1: confident, but makes me feel good about this film in terms of the Oscars and – is that again so dramatically the past five years or so the voting branch for the academy has just changed so radically and i think a lot of the international voters um will and more like not like the traditional older voters but more international branch will look at this film and see how audacious it is and its filmmaking and what it's trying to convey and will be really attracted to it and i think also with the director's branch um, there's a lot of times where they prefer not to go for more traditionally made films, and they're the more stylistically flared uh, branch where they're like, oh, we really appreciate what you're doing here, and we're willing to acknowledge that. So that's why I do think um, Glazer do has a chance. That being said, though, it is pretty stacked category, so if Glazer missed, I sadly would not be surprised.
2: Yeah. Here's my argument about why it will make the 10 is that on the nomination level, it's all about passion and how many number one votes you get. And I can see voters being extremely passionate about this because it is it is a very distinctive film that in its own way stands above everything else in terms of its uniqueness. So I I could see it getting enough number ones to get into the ten. Right now. We'll see. Now,
0: here's something else to consider, then, at that point. Where does that leave anatomy of a fall in the best picture lineup? Because if your confident zone of interest is getting in, you know, two two international nominees for picture, it's mmm. I don't know. I have both in like my nine and ten
1: spot. So I, I think Anatomy is helped by the potential, like, screenplay nomination acting you can get. And it is also more—I think crowd-pleasing is a very easy way to say that more general audiences is more appealing for Anatomy of Fall compared to Zone of Interest, which is an incredibly dour movie. So I'm I'm really banking on just the artistic merit of this film being so appreciated that they're like, we, it has to be pushed. Like, we we need to acknowledge it.
0: Also, too— Two nominees for A twenty four with past lives and zone of interest, or only one? I, I mean, I can see, I can see two, I can see two. We'll see. Just putting it out there. <laughs> All right, another trailer. Eileen, a movie I haven't heard about in a while because it premiered at Sundance. Finally getting released now from Neon on December first. It will go wide on December eighth. This is starring Thomas and Mackenzie and Halfway Shea Wiggum and it is directed by William Olroyd. It is, uh well, you know what? Let's take a look at the trailer and then we'll go from there. <laughs> Eileen!
2: <laughs> oh, look what the cat dragged in. Good afternoon, Eileen. How
0: was your day, Dad?
2: It was a day, just another day.
0: My day was a doozy it's one of those days you never
2: forget listen up this young lady is our new prison psychologist she may be easy on the eyes but i assure you she is very smart i'm rebecca i know <laughs> i don't think i caught your name hmm
0: i don't know quite know what to make of this so i will tell you that when i saw it at sundance i <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking because I I didn't know the source material that this was based on. But I kind of had it in my mind that this was going to be like another Carol type movie to some degree or another. And it very much does start out that way. And then it does indeed become this Hitchcockian thriller of sorts uh, with a very polarizing ending that had uh, critics at Sundance baffled. Some people really loved it. Other people really did not like it. Um, I will save that for myself. I really, really dug a name in this cast who has not been mentioned quite enough, and that's Marin Ireland. She has an unbelievable scene in the third act of this movie where the performance that she's giving, I just want people to take note of this when they go to see this film. She is unreal in this one particular scene. It's lensed very well by Ari Wegner, it is really well directed, I thought, throughout. And then the ending itself happens, and I was like, wait a minute. What? That's how it ends? Going back to a reoccurring theme we were saying earlier, Geo. So, I was mixed on this one. I've... Talked to people who really, really loved it. It was one of their favorite films at at Sundance. And I've also talked to people who feel the same way I do. Um, I'm just actually really surprised that the marketing for this movie really leaned into the thriller aspects because it doesn't really start to become a thriller until the third act. Interesting.
1: I, I'm I'm intrigued by it. I don't know if I will like it, but I'm I'm most certainly
0: intrigued.
2: Yeah, and I I love the three leads. Um, in everything else they've done. So uh, I'm curious about it.
0: Anne Hathaway is delicious in this movie. (laughs) (laughs) She is so self-aware of what she could bring to this role in a way that like, the confidence was just radiating off of the screen with this performance. I thought she was fantastic here. Really, really liked her in this. It's definitely one of my favorite performances from her. And Thomas and Mackenzie, still very young, 23 years old, still finding new ways to surprise us. Uh, We've only scratched the surface, I think, of how talented she is. And I mean, seeing what her career has been so far, I can't even begin to imagine what she's going to do within the next 10 years. All right, let's move on over now to our final trailer for this week. It's uh, The Boys in the Boat. From George Clooney, MGM Studios release starring Joel Egerton, Callum Turner, coming to theaters on Christmas, December 25th, 2023. Let's take a look. Let's get some thoughts.
2: There are some moments in life you can never forget. The depression hit everyone hard. No jobs, no food. We were broke. Looks like you still owe a balance on this semester.
0: So what, what's that about making some money?
2: Yeah, the Roman team. Your you get a part-time job included, she placed to live. A-man crew is the most difficult team sport in the world. The average human body is just not meant for such things. Most of you will not be chosen.
1: Beautiful speech, coach. It's not a real movie, is it? This is this is like a movie you see like on a TV show, and then that's something they're watching in the TV show.
0: (laughs) It doesn't seem real. I am convinced that George Clooney is a versatile enough director that he can direct any genre, any type of story. Because just look at the man's filmography in terms of what he has done so far, right? So why? Why does he continue to make stories that are so uninteresting and so conventional and does not convey any kind of personality whatsoever in his directorial skills? It it baffles me. I don't understand this run that he's been on these last couple of years. The Monuments Men, Suburbicon, Midnight Sky. Sorry, I was not a fan of that movie, even if some of you were. The Tender Bar, which I thought was mid, like, definition in the dictionary. Look up mid and the Tender Bar is there. And now I feel like I'm seeing again here with the boys in the boat. Like, this trailer literally tells you the entire movie.
2: Yeah. It's it's. I, I I was watching this and I think this man directed Good Night and Good Luck. And that's yes. like the one thing that I feel like we've all been, uh, like
0: giving him a pass for. Gosh, it's so good. Ever since, I mean, Eyes to March is a pretty solid movie too. Eyes yes, to March, I,
1: I do. I, I just, Good Night and Good Luck is such a great movie that I've been like, I need, some type of, <laughs> Kenneth Branagh like Belfast type resurgence like for George Clooney for a film he makes desperately like really badly because I want to see that Clooney back in the director's chair
0: or I just don't understand like how he can have such vibrant personality in his uh acting career I, and listen I get it he usually George Clooney's usually playing George Clooney some variation of George Clooney right I wouldn't consider him to be a great actor but he is a movie star and he does have charm and he's got wit I don't understand how he's not been able to transfer any of this over into the projects that he directs. I mean, there are attempts, and I can see that like maybe on the page there was something there. Or maybe I just need to conclude that he just doesn't make movies for me. He makes movies for my parents and my grandparents. I, no. I don't know.
2: No. You know, but th- he had – I miss so much is he had an edge to him in those first few films. Mm-hmm. And he had a, he had a fervent political point of view and it, and it was thrilling because he had the, the directorial chops to back it up. And this is just like, he's gumming his food. It's just it's so there's no reason this story needs to be told and why he is choosing of all the projects that probably come his way to do something like this. This is what's so frustrating.
0: Yeah. Okay, like it's another inspirational true sports drama, okay, where the team has to overcome adversity and defeat the Nazis. Oh, boy. (laughs) Because, you know, we haven't seen that before. Old man voiceover narration in the future or the present day or whatever, like recounting the story. Mm. Haven't seen that before. Now, that being said, it does have Joel Edgerton. So <sighs> yeah. I will be watching it. <laughs> you know. Yeah, Joel Edgerton Joel is a pretty, pretty good actor. I'll watch yeah. it for him. Yeah. Talon um, Turner, too. I, I actually, Talon Turner is one of the very few bright spots in the Fantastic Beasts uh, movies for me. I quite liked him in that. I also liked him in Emma. Yeah, he's good. Emma. Yeah. But man, oh man. <sighs> this did nothing for me. <laughs> like literally nothing give us nothing king george clooney (laughs) (laughs) Uh, i'm sure it'll play well you know over the holidays it's one of those nice movies feel good films very light very Uh, easy
2: it's made for streaming
0: (laughs) yeah i as soon as i saw the trailer for this i was like well that's not a contender
2: no oh man
0: all right well that's it for the trailers for this week Let's head on over now to questions from the fans. Let's see what the MVP film community had to ask us for this week.
2: Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that.
0: I'm sure we have a lot of questions here about Killers of the Flower Moon. Let's see what they had to ask us here in regards to that. Uh, polls for Life. Martin Scorsese recently announced that his next movie is going to be The Wager, starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Do you think this news will weaken Scorsese's chances of winning an Oscar this next year since uh, this is not his final film? That the Academy could reward him with. What, what? No. Who thought that this was going to be his final film? No. He didn't announce his retirement. Yeah, no. I know the guy's 80 years old, but like, do we all of a sudden feel that once somebody hits 80, like it's automatically like over? And I know that on our review, Gio, we talked about this. Yeah. He is being self-reflective in a lot of interviews and he is talking about the end of his career and the end of his life a lot. So I think that's what's gotten people in this mindset. He has said, though, that he still thinks he's got one or two films still left in him. So let's see how that plays out. I don't think it'll affect it at all. Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. Uh, this is from at Peter Rabbit4DX. With Killers of the Flower Moon getting positive uh, reactions, critical and from cinephiles, uh, but it's not doing so great uh, at the opening weekend box office. Do you guys think because of the film's uh, long runtime, this is the main factor that it has turned so many people off? Or do you think there should be theatrical – do you think there should be intermissions uh, inserted into theatrical releases again? Well,
2: to go – I just want to take the first one. I mean it's a three-hour film for adults who don't go to the movies all that often and will probably keep it going for a while. I wouldn't write off its box office prospects right right yet.
0: Yeah. We seem to live in a world where everybody lives and dies by that opening weekend number.
2: Yeah. I mean look at Elemental, how that just stayed. Legs. You know, so so don't write it off yet, kids. This this one could have legs. And
0: also, more importantly, this is the thing that's most important to remember. Apple did this as a courtesy. They didn't need to release this theatrically. I also think Apple knows for the like. Let's say this
1: movie doesn't make a kajillion dollars at the box office. Uh, I'm pretty sure Apple knew this like way ahead of the curve yes. that it probably it was never made for it to be some like. Oppenheimer level, wow, we need to match that now type box office uh, results. It was always made as, we want to work with Martin Scorsese, we're going to give him what he wants, and we're going to let him cook. And they did. And, I mean, it's it's like his third highest opening weekend of his entire career, I'm pretty sure, next to, like, The Departed and Shutter Island. For this type of movie, getting an A- minus cinema score, too, which is wild, we got to give it legs. And, and, sure, when it comes on Apple, it'll probably decrease those legs a bit, but... I mean, it it can make solid money, but I, I've never thought that. And also, like, Taylor Swift's out right now. So, like, a lot of people are going to go see that, especially that demographic. So I, yeah. I don't think this is, like, some, oh, it's dead in the water. Like, this is just, it's over. Can I tell you
0: why I hate the idea of an intermission? Why? I'm already there for three and a half hours. I don't need to be there for three hours and 45 minutes.
1: Yeah. Also, like. People could sit through a movie like Endgame for three hours, like no problem. It's literally like 20 more minutes. Like it's 20 more minutes. You don't – to me, intermissions – unless I'm watching like a seven-hour movie or something, you know? Uh, Just keep the momentum going, like especially with how everything's going. I'm good. I dehydrated myself for that movie. Although the second time I saw Flower Moon, I drank a large iced matcha before it, and it was not a great idea.
2: That's your fault.
0: (laughs) If you find yourself in a scenario where you have to get up and go to the bathroom – Uh, I like uh, Jim's Jim Cameron's response to this. Pay money and go see the movie again. (laughs) See what you missed. Yeah. And in this case, that's fine. No, it's going to be on Apple via streaming at some point. You can watch it again later.
2: You know, for God's sake, people pee beforehand.
0: It's not even that. It's that I just can't help but feel this is one of those things that people keep asking for. But I guarantee you, if they if it was granted, it wouldn't make a difference. They probably still wouldn't go. They would probably still make excuses as to why they're not going. Okay? Why cater to these silly demands? I just I, I don't understand it. I really don't. Yeah. I think also people
1: I don't understand how people like go pick a movie. It's okay, now we're getting a tangent. Like, you know when people you go to the line because I like getting my ticket stubs, how people go up to the front to the box office and be like, mm, I don't know what movie I'm going to watch." I'm like, "You drove all the way out here." You don't know what you're going to watch or haven't looked at like maybe how long it is. Some people do or... just
0: waltz into a theater, Gia.
1: I know, but still, I think in this day and age, especially like a lot of people get in your car or you make a whole trip out of it, I feel like you should know like at least a little bit of what I'm watching or like maybe how long it is to plan around your day. So, I mean, that should be known ahead of time. I'm sorry.
0: Edwin Aras, this year we have a few films that are projected to receive at least 10 nominations between Killers of the Flower Moon, Oppenheimer, and Poor Things. Which one of these do you think are most likely going to get Shut out of a category. Yeah, because if you do the projections for like these films maxing out, we're talking like 13, 12 nominations, uh, maybe with Oppenheimer, even potentially 14. But in terms of things that they couldn't miss, I think we kind of discussed this on Killers. Like Killers could miss costumes. Or sound. could miss sound. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know, this is going to sound really terrible. I could see Emily Blunt missing supporting actress for Oppenheimer. Oh, that would be sad. That would be sad. I do wonder why she still hasn't gotten a nomination up until this point. And, you know, you just have to wonder if that bad luck is going to continue.
2: I do hope that the Killers isn't uh, shut out of score, though.
0: No, I actually think it's number two in score behind Oppenheimer. I agree. Emrick, do you think the A-cinema minus score for Killers is a good sign for its awards chances? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yep. yep. Anthony at Oscar Obsessive with the release of *Killers of the Flower Moon*, how would you rank the Scorsese DiCaprio collaborations? Okay, *Wolf of Wall Street* number one. Mm-hmm. Oh. *Departed* number two. *Killers of the Flower Moon* number three for me. *Shutter* uh, no *Aviator*, *Shutter Island*, *Gangs of New York*. I practically have around the same list, but I put
1: *Departed* number one for me, and then *Wolf of Wall Street* two. Now, were
0: you going by film or performance? Are we going by performance? See, I was going by performance.
1: Okay, then if it's performance, then Wolf is number one.
2: Yeah. I'm with Gio on that.
0: Uh, Ethan at LapukiBear06. Um, I was really interested by your discussion of Lily Gladstone and Best Actress in your Killers of the Flower Moon review. Something I thought while listening was that the Golden Globes are the first precursor this season. Assuming they get a network to air their show, could the split of actress competition... Uh, put Stone in comedy and Gladstone in drama. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about this too, right? Um, yeah. Because of the split categories at the Globes, who then stands the best chance to win drama actress with Stone being in the comedy musical category? It's either Mulligan or, or Mulligan. Gladstone. Well, yeah. yeah, that's exactly it. Now, my gut says Mulligan. But I wouldn't be surprised if Gladstone took it. And that could be... One of two things. It could be, you know, the beginning of the tide turning within the season in her favor. Or it could be the one stop place where she gets recognized that season. I don't know. There's still a lot of uh, places that this uh, category can go. We still got to see Fantasia Barino in the color purple.
2: Yeah. And, you know, the Golden Globe voters, the new group of Golden Globe voters, you know, may want to stake out something to bring some attention to the fact that they might be a better organization now than they were, and agreed. Certainly, giving Gladstone a win there would uh, really help that.
0: Speaking of Fantasia Burino, Casey Chapman, I feel that Fantasia is a lock Ooh, for a nomination for the Color Purple. Mm-hmm. But to help her get the win, she really needs to be on a talk show circuit to tell her story. She has a hell of a personal story. She is so lovely. I think it would only increase her chances. This strike is really hurting people like her. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's hurting everybody.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: I mean, Emma Stone not being able to get out to talk about poor things, I'm sure, is killing her. She's also a producer on the film, too, so that 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 must be painful. Coleman Domingo, I feel so bad for the guy yeah. yep. that he's not been able to get out there and talk about Rustin this season. It's this the whole period where it's like, smaller roles like that, are, we
1: we want these actors to be out there, obviously, so they can push and get attention, but, I mean... This strike has been just hurting everyone badly, you
2: know, and especially newer, con- newer um, contenders like Fantasia Barrino in terms of acting and and Coleman Domingo, who we know. But I'm sure that a lot of uh, moviegoers don't know the name quite yet. If he's out there on the uh, hustings, I mean, he could he could make such a favorable impression. And he's just they've just been stuck uh, because of the strike. It's it's a shame.
0: Uh, Bender Batch asks, what do you think of actors who are running not a campaign campaigns while still pushing their names out there during the strike, like Bradley Cooper's surprise appearance at MYFF or Emma Stone promoting Bleat with Lanthimos, even though they couldn't talk about poor things, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, they're not breaking any rules. No. Or they're getting permission like Bradley Cooper did. So who gives a shit? No. That's what I think. If they're not breaking the rules. And they're getting permission to do everything and they're staying within those guidelines, then. Yep. Yeah. Cut. All good. Green is go. (laughs) Yes. Edwin Araz, in honor of the Color Purple's movie poster release, (laughs) which are the worst and best movie posters of 2023?
1: Oh, we're talking about worse The killers of the flower moon exudes a uh, grandpa floating head posters where your grandparents walk by and they're like, "Ooh, that might be good <laughs> and see that.
0: Uh, yeah. The killers poster yeah. is pretty bad. American fictions poster this past week was really good.
1: That zone really of cool. interest. We talked about really good poster. Yep. Poor Not a good movie, things. but yeah. Oh, any, any poor the Tom's right. Any, any poor things poster has been perfect. Poor things might have the best posters of the year. I, yeah. Terrible movie, good poster. The hand painted one for Dial of Destiny is uh, really good.
2: Yeah, yeah it is, uh, it's old fashioned, but it's yeah, cool.
1: it's pretty good. And then the original Oppenheimer poster, when he's like standing far away in the smoke, or like the one of him staring into the hole, is good. But then the main Oppenheimer poster is really bad.
0: <laughs> Oscar Odyssey. Every David Fincher film post Curious Case of Benjamin Button has gotten a leading acting nomination. With that in mind, are we underestimating Michael Fassbender's chances of breaking into lead actor? Uh, no, we are not. No, no, no that is not happening. <laughs> He's really good
1: in the film. Very fun performance. I really enjoy it. I do, too. But that is not happening. No.
0: Also, too, not with this stacked category. Yeah. The Killer exudes,
1: like, Lone Sound nomination, Oscar nominee. That's... That's the vibe I get from that movie.
0: Although the cinematography, very good. Actually, I would say this. I would say its three biggest prospects are editing, sound, and score. Yeah, the score is pretty cool. Josie DeMarco, what are some of your favorite child or teen performances of 2023 so far?
2: Two come right to mind for me. I mean, I think among... Teen Girls, I'd say A.B. Ryder Fortson yes. for Are You Their God.
0: Yes. Uh, Milo Machado Grainer for Anatomy of a Fall.
2: Oh, oh key. brilliant. Yes.
0: Scene Steeler, I was blown away by that performance.
2: And that's a tough performance to pull off because mm-hmm. he is so key to the, the film.
0: You know, the kid in Florin's son, uh, Oren Kinlan, yeah. who plays Max, I liked him. Oh, yeah. And like we just talked about her recently, Madeline Yuna Voiles from The Creator. Oh, Oh, yeah.
1: That was a good performance in a not so great movie, but she
0: is standout for sure. But Giovanni, it's one of the best films of the decade. Don't you know? Oh, okay, All right. I still don't understand the praise that that movie got from some people. I really don't. (laughs) (laughs) I don't get it either. Uh, Oh, missed this question before about Killers of the Flower Moon from Jaden Ragona, do you think Robert De Niro can go all the way in supporting actor? I think it's been 42 years since his last win, and it could be the final one for one of the greatest actors alive.
2: Uh, no, I, I think there is a path that may be a narrow one, but I, I personally, I think it's his best work in a decade. I think it's his best work since the early 90s. Wow.
0: He's very good. I think also that category is just
1: very stacked. I I am not convinced about Gosling. I think Downey Jr. is personally winning. And I just think, I mean, say what you want about Gosling. I think it is very showy. And I know it's the comedy performance. But talk about an actor who's absolutely dialed in into like every single like
0: scene. I think that will attract a lot of voters. I agree with that, but I have a feeling that Ruffalo in terms of a comedic performance has kind of stolen that thunder a little bit.
1: That too, you know, speaking of comedy, like Mark Ruffalo is also just incredibly dialed into Yorgos' Wavelength, that whole film, and he is so good.
0: S2S movie reviews, Napoleon's new trailer is so amazing. I see it's being ignored in a lot of predictions, but it looks like it could get double-digit nominations if it's good. So what do you think of Napoleon's chances? Mm. Or bust. Listen, if it's, like, really good, I mean, like, this would have to be incredible. And if it really is incredible, if it is that good, why did it not go to a single festival?
2: Yeah. yeah. AFI, timing-wise, would have been perfect for it.
0: I mean, they could have brought it anywhere. Now, granted, they might be withholding it to just build anticipation because they wanted to make money. But I, personally, given Ridley Scott's track record these last couple of years... He's very hit or miss. Yeah. And something tells me that this movie is, I think, going to be very well regarded in the crafts. But above the line, mm, I'm not feeling it so much. I'm not feeling it for Joaquin based on everything I've seen so far. You know, Scott in a director lineup, maybe if this was the kind of thing like back in the early 2000s for the scale and scope of it all, sure. Mm -hmm. But... I just don't feel like the Academy goes for this type of direction anymore. Look, look, look at James Cameron missing for Avatar last year.
2: Yeah. You know, I think Kirby might have a might have had a shot in another year going supporting, but uh, it the movie would have to be really good and it have to be about her. Yeah, they did announce that she is going
0: supporting. And that is something that I instantly bumped her up to number six in my predictions now pending seeing the movie to decide what to do with her for sure. Because I feel like Penelope Cruz is also in that position where I don't think Ferrari's getting in for, like, picture or director or anything like that. And so she would be the only above-the-line nomination for it, plus crafts. That's how I kind of feel yeah. about Kirby in this movie, too. Crafts plus her. Let's see what it all shakes out to be. Mm, that makes sense. But, man, I don't know how you look at it, at least the trailers for this and you don't say to yourself costumes, production design, sound, maybe even visual effects for some of these battle scenes. Yeah. Like, it's not the kind of movie that needs to get overly enthusiastic reviews to land in those categories either. That's true. Ben Sears, all of last year's acting Oscar winners had some element of a career narrative behind their win. If that trend were to continue this year, who would benefit the most and take that narrative to a win? Bradley Cooper. Yeah, Bradley for sure. Yep, Cooper.
1: The guy who's been nominated for nine Oscars and is doing the most like, Oscar-y makeup transformation directed himself <laughs> performance.
0: Yeah. I would argue Gladstone's narrative is stronger than Mulligan's narrative. And Mulligan's is yep. just she's been around, and she's been nominated, but she's never won. Uh, <sighs> Gladstone's making history if she wins. Also going from like... I almost worked in like data entry
1: and I was starting classes and then I got an email from like Martin Scorsese and now I'm in a Scorsese film. That's a pretty wild story too. That fits that whole like career
0: Uh, supporting actor. It's Downey.
2: Downey is the story.
0: Yep. Yeah. Supporting actress. Who's got the the strongest narrative there?
1: Take your pick. (laughs) Just take your pick with that category. (laughs) Throw a dart and just hope it lands on someone who makes sense.
0: I mean, you could argue blunt with – Never never having been nominated, they finally give her a nomination and here's the win to make up for all the times we didn't nominate you. Um,
2: but, you know, many of the contenders, uh, you know, are newcomers to uh, the Oscar race so that, that we don't have a lot of overdue stuff. Maybe Taraji P. Henson, but he's – but that's about it.
0: Yeah, Taraji yeah. feels overdue. So that's its own kind of narrative, the, you know, never been properly recognized by the Academy. She's been nominated before with uh, Curious yep. Gates, Benjamin Button, but – no win. Uh, Divine Joy Randolph, she's very good in that movie, but I don't know what the narrative is. I don't know like what the story is behind a win for her in that category. Yeah. Danielle Brooks yeah. has a bit of a narrative in the sense that she made her uh, Broadway debut with The Color Purple. She received a Tony Award nomination uh, for the performance, and now she's bringing that over to the screen so there, there's something there. But once again, it's not, like, entirely compelling. I would need to know more. So, yeah, I kind of agree with you uh, when you say, like, throw throw a dart at this category because uh, nobody's really screaming out as the main, like, this is a narrative type win. Yeah, I think this might just all come down to which film did they like more, which performance they like more, which is the way it should be.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But this, this is a category, because of that, um, I can see surprises.
0: Yes. Yes, I could too. Okay, final question for this week. And I'm sorry, everyone. There's a lot of really great questions here. We can't get to all of them all the time. Uh, but <laughs> this one from cool dude underscore today. What film has the potential of being the Green Book Crash-type Best Picture winner this year? A problematic movie that keeps losing... To a much more acclaimed film, but gain some last minute momentum to snag the Oscar at the very end.
1: I don't know if this year's contenders really have a movie considered problematic in that way, off the top of my head, but if we're going for like the very traditional feel goody movie, it's gonna be the Holdovers. It's a very crowd pleasing, compared to something that it's like, in, in every, like, let's say it wins original screenplay over something like past lives which everyone loves dearly or even barbie which has its fans you know people will be like oh that's that's really what's winning although there are a section that really do enjoy the holdovers i'm in the minority you know that being said but i can acknowledge it's a film that i still think is a top five picture contender and people dig
0: i really really love the holdovers I don't think the holdovers should win Best Picture, but I really do love the movie.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it'll it'll depend what the uh, the negative campaign is going to be. I mean, we did we did see a little bit of it with uh, Bradley Cooper's nose. Um, there was a little bit of uh, is this Martin Scorsese's story to tell kind of things. Nothing seems to have really uh, taken hold. So, um, you know, we just have to see what the big scandal is going to be once the negative campaign starts.
0: Yeah, I feel like *Killers of the Flower Moon, there was a bit of discourse this past week and rightfully so. I think that there was always going to be talk about how that story was told, who was telling it. And there was that red carpet interview with one of the consultants who um, expressed his concerns about the movie. And he did so in a way that completely made sense. And he was completely justified in having uh, those thoughts and uh, credit to the filmmakers for inviting him to the premiere and allowing him well, I don't want to say allowing him, but you could tell that there's been no pushback like from the studio to try and squash this kind of discourse. If anything, the movie is actually inviting it because that's kind of what the movie, uh, you know, without giving spoilers away, the movie itself even acknowledges this discourse and ties into the greater themes of what the film is ultimately about, which I think has actually worked out in its favor. Yeah. So any potential chance there was to run this into the ground due to controversy has, I think, kind of been leaped over, like the same way Maestro was able to leap over its controversy, which ran for about a week. Yeah. You know, poor things might get some controversy just because of... Bella's experiences with sex in the movie and how she chooses to uh, utilize that, and you know the fact that this movie's written and directed by two men, I think there will be some discussion about that. I don't think that's going to turn poor things into a villain this season though. Oh, wait until the whole uh we saw
1: a little glimpse of it at a NIF q and a, the zone of interest and just why are we making movies about Nazis and stuff like oh, that, that we'll, f- that's not going <laughs> to take hold either. I don't. The internet
0: these days, everything gets blown up into a proportion. So I mean, who knows? I mean, like, what's Air's worst crime? Air's worst crime is that it's considered mid by some people, <laughs> right? How are you making a movie about Michael Jordan without having Michael Jordan in it? I mean, American Fiction too, as as forny as that movie could potentially be, I think it does a really good job of never provoking one side or the other too much to the point that it would create that kind of controversy. Instead, it seems like based on the reactions out of TIFF, it was able to um, navigate through that in a way that obviously, you know, led to it winning the People's Choice Award. Now, I could, I, I, I very well could be wrong about this. And maybe, just maybe, American fiction is this year's green book to a certain degree maybe there is a perspective about this movie that I haven't heard that somebody's going to put out there into the world and it will be completely valid and it will start up a whole new level of conversation about this film. You know what? Good. We should be having these conversations. I think every year the Oscar race, these types of discourses, um, even if you don't agree with them, you should still listen to them. You should still hear these other opinions because I think that's what makes this whole landscape a little bit better when it's not an echo chamber of just, praise upon praise upon praise hopefully people feel that's what we do here with our reviews and our discussions about the race Yep. alright well that'll do it here for this week's episode Tom O'Brien tell everyone that's listening right now where they can
2: find you on the internet well you can find me at Twitter and I'll be at AFI Fest all week so follow me there at Thomas E. O'Brien
0: can't wait to see you my friend we're gonna Thank have you. a really really good time over there be great. Giovanni Lago tell everyone that's listening right now where they can find you on the internet you can find me on Twitter at the Giovanni Lago And you can find me at Next Best Picture. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to episode 365 of the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us, including our Patreon podcast release of seven, which we are releasing this week in anticipation for David Fincher's The Killer. So stay tuned for that one. Thank you all so much for listening as always, and we will see you all next time.